Welcome to Revelation Ancient Prophecy. This series is a detailed, in-depth study of the book of Revelation. You will discover just how relevant to our day the prophecies of Revelation really are. Here is your presenter, Pastor Baron Neustraten. Well, good evening. Thank you for being here and thank you for logging in. And uh, as we study the book of Revelation and continue tonight, a very important study. I mean, they all are, but this one particularly really requires your attention. So could I invite you just to bow your heads as we seek the presence of the Holy Spirit amongst us. Heavenly Father, we, um, we thank you that we have this opportunity once again that we can look at your word and study your word. It is your gift to us and we know that. But we pray that the spirit that inspired the writer, the author, will illumine our minds that we may have an understanding, a clear understanding of what you're telling us and uh, Lord, that we may follow the directions that are contained in your word. So bless us now in Jesus' precious name. Amen. We have so far, we have looked at the seven churches. The, we have recognized the dual application, the application for the day, and the one that is, of course, for the Christian era. The messages of the seven churches. And we've identified, obviously, as does the book of Revelation, which churches we're talking about, and the conditions and the issues in the various Christian eras. But here is something interesting. John gets to see that first. And I often ponder, as the man John on the island of Patmos, did John fully understand the tremendous time frames of the Christian church? that he was reporting upon. Not for a minute do I think that he had a realization how long it would be before Jesus would return. And so there was a local application and uh, it may be that his knowledge and insight did not extend beyond that. But here is an interesting thing. The year is about 95 AD and um, now he gets a vision which is incredible. We alluded to that next, I announced that last week. We are now going to look at the throne room in heaven. What an incredible sight. Now, you have to bear with it. Symbols, so many. But they're all explainable and have a purpose and a meaning. So we need to carefully read the text and, uh, and try to grasp the message that comes to us. After these things, he's now, we're now moving into chapter 4. After these things, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Now, it is not a door that leads into heaven. It is a door inside heaven, open to a, well... In this case, the throne room. And that is what he is seeing. That is what he is seeing. And so the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet, which was like a trumpet speaking with me. You remember that was the voice of Jesus who was behind him. So this is Jesus inviting him, saying to him, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. 
when it says after this, that is not a chronological order following up from the church of Laodicea, because that is already coming to the closing scenes of this planet. This is, uh, again, a different view of history that is coming our way. So he has a first vision, that is the, of the seven churches, which is mainly spoken. Now he gets very much a pictorial scenario. And this, of course, is something that has to find place, particularly after his days. Now, when we look at this, when we look at this, immediately John says, I was in the spirit. Now, when you're on the spirit, the spirit takes over. Location, time, doesn't matter. The spirit has full control over that. I was in the spirit and behold, a throne set up in heaven. A throne room. And one sat on the throne. There is someone on the throne. He doesn't describe him. But he paints the picture of the glittering lights that he sees. He who sat there was like a jasper and sardius stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow, a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald, which is uh, green. The rainbow is really synonymous with deity. It's divinity. It is the Godhead, a covenant-keeping Godhead. That is what the rainbow, of course, resembles here. You remember the rainbow there after the flood? And we find in a number of what we call theophanies, the picture or the mention of the presence of a rainbow as, a, as, a, as an appearance. And now, interestingly here, around the throne were 24 thrones. Now, have a look at this, what it says. I saw 24 elders sitting. We want to find out who the 24 elders are. And we, we will do that today. We will do that tonight. Clothed in white raiment, white robes. In other words, sinless. And they, have had a, they had a crown of gold on their heads a ruling capacity, a leading capacity. Who are the 24 elders? They have clothed in white robes and crowns diadematta in the Greek here has a connotation of overcoming or being, uh, being victorious of gold on their heads. Interesting. Let's find out who they really are. Perhaps the first thing to do is to find out what they are not. And what often has been perceived the identity of the 24 elders. I'm now just going to deviate a little bit from the book of Revelation. And we go back, we actually go back in time uh, when Jesus was laid in the grave. It says there on that Friday afternoon at 3 p.m., around about 3 p.m., the time of the evening sacrifice, when Jesus gave up the spirit, his spirit, that there actually was an earthquake. And that's very interesting. 
at that moment, note what it says here. At the moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, you have to understand that that curtain was about that thick, a few inches thick, very beautifully woven, that tore from top to bottom. This is not a human hand, clearly. It would be too thick, too high. It would be impossible for anybody any human hands to perform that action. This clearly is an action by God himself, God the Father. At the moment that Jesus died, that veil was torn and it had tremendous meaning and it'd be very tempting to explain the full meaning. But let me just put it to you this way. That the tearing of that curtain and the dying of Jesus we're at the same time, and the two are related. And it'd be a wonderful topic to talk about this more extensively another time. But for the moment, this is what we're interested This is what we're interested in. Listen carefully. The earth shook. There was an earthquake. But the earthquake did not cause the tearing of the curtain. The integrity of the temple building was not affected. And so... It says the rock splits. There was an earthquake. The rocks split at the moment that Jesus died. Note what's said here now in Matthew 27. And the graves were opened. Now, I've got a little picture here, which I do like, with the crosses in the background. I'm not saying it's a realistic representation. I'm just saying we're looking from out inside the cave to the outside. And so we have graves that were hewn into rocks. They were like caves. And that is where often the Fepper families, where they used to put the dead and bury them. And uh, that was very common, as it still is in certain parts of the world, very common uh, at that time. So when the rocks are splitting, the grave sites that are dug in the rocks are now being opened. That's what we're talking about. And many body of the saints. So these are a godly people, a saved people, who had fallen asleep, which means they had died. They have died. We don't know when, uh, were raised. Now, before we presume that they were raised on the very moment that the graves opened, because that's not what happened. It's qualified, as we keep on reading in the Gospel of Matthew here, the 27th chapter. What is important, what is important, we don't know who they are. None of the saints that were raised we know by name. But it is fascinating that they qualified as saints, and it is fascinating that they had a task to perform. Have a look at this. Coming out of their graves, note carefully, after his resurrection. So they come out of the grave after the resurrection of Jesus, which was early Sunday morning, round about 5 a.m. in the morning on a Sunday morning. After that, they come back to life. The preeminence of Christ coming back to life must precede the raising, must precede the raising of these saints. Because if Christ would not have been risen, they would not have been risen. 
And so Christ rises back to life. And then these people, because they're people, are obviously coming back to life. And notice, notice, this is fascinating. They went into the holy city. What holy city? Jerusalem. Why? They appeared to many. So their function was to go into the city, Jerusalem, to proclaim a risen Savior, and as a witness, being, if you like, and I'll just mention this, the first fruits. And I'm going to explain that to you, the significance. And so it says here this. On the 14th of Nisan, that is the first month in the religious calendar, Nisan, you have the Passover offering, the lamb. That in 31 AD was Friday, which we call Good Friday. Then the next day, as Friday comes to a close, Jesus has died and they hurry to bury him. There is not even time to anoint him because the Sabbath is drawing near, the Sabbath starting at sunset. So the next day is going to be a seventh day Sabbath, but also at that year it happened to be the first day of the week of unleavened bread which means it is also, the 15th of Nisan, is also a ceremonial Sabbath day. Now, as it happens, as it happens, a seventh day Sabbath and a ceremonial datable, dated Sabbath day fall together on the one day, and that then becomes what is known as a high day, as it is recorded there in the Gospel of John. The first day after the first day of the week of unleavened bread has also very much a significance. That is the date that you have what is called the waving of the sheaf. Let me explain. The Passover was connected. The Passover was connected to the barley harvest. As the barley harvest was in the field, they were not permitted to commence the harvest unless they went to the temple first with a sheaf of barley. So early in the morning, that is the day after the Sabbath, which in this case was the 16th of Nisan, which in this case was early on a Sunday morning, they would at about five o'clock in the morning, they would go down the fields nearby where the barley harvest was and obtain a sheaf of the barley. And then they would walk up the steps to the temple. They would walk it into the temple ground and hand the sheaf to the priest who would walk into the holy place. And before that curtain, the veil, he would wave the sheaf. That was the tradition. The sheaf was the first fruit of the barley harvest. Now you note the meaning here. The first sheaf of the barley harvest has to be really primarily Jesus Christ. He is the first who comes to life. Then the ones, the saints that were in the graves, 
they came to life and they in a very special way are the first fruits indicative of the massive resurrection that will find place when Jesus returns the second time and all the dead in Christ will be raised. Magnificent meanings. Magnificent meanings. And that is what happened there. But what is fascinating is this. Paul makes a note of those who were raised back to life. In very simple terms, have a look at this verse. Ephesians there, the fourth chapter, verse 8. When he ascended on high, speaking of Jesus, when he was returning, he took many captives. You see, these saints had been held captive in the grave, but they were now resurrected. And somehow with Christ, they are heaven bound. That is what the apostle is saying. And Christ, of course, gave gifts to his people. He's quoting from the predictive element of Psalm 68, verse 18, in Ephesians 4, verse 8. Fascinating. So we have a people as a first fruit that were resurrected and go with Christ to heaven. But what is very important in the context of what we're studying here today, that in chapter 4 of the book of Revelation, they are not present. As you get a descriptive description of the throne room, they have not arrived yet when you study the fourth chapter of the book of Revelation. Have a look at this. Let's start. From the throne proceeded lightnings, thundering, and voices. That's a, an opening statement that John makes a number of times. It sounds majestic. It certainly demands the attention. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, the throne of God. Seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which he says and identifies as the seven spirits of God. Now, under the church of Sardis, we already spoke of the seven churches, or I'm sorry, the seven spirits of God, and we identified God the Holy Spirit. This is the symbol for God the Holy Spirit. And so, uh, this is not the seven churches, this is God the Holy Spirit. And it says here, before the throne, as we continue to read, was a sea of glass, like crystal. He's trying to give expression to what he sees. He has never seen anything like it. Imagine having a look in the throne room of heaven, and that is what he sees. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne, and it gets complicated, I grant you, were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. So he sees a symbolism. He sees four creatures, which he's going to describe more fully. But what he says, they have eyes everywhere. The eyes, presence of the eyes is intellect, observation capacity, and of course, the other thing that of the word ayin in Hebrew, it is a sparkling, it is a brilliance that is suggested by that very word. And so... Then he notes this, and it is very, very interesting. The first living creature, 
is like a lion. The second living creature is like a calf. The third living creature has the face like a man. The fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. So we have a lion, we have an ox, we have a man, and we have an eagle. What are we to make of this? The Bible itself does not explain this. So I now step outside the Bible and I go to what's believed to be a tradition amongst the tribes of Israel. Amongst the tribes of Israel, particularly as they had moved out of Egypt, were a certain order of uh, the way they set up their camp. They had a division of four, three times three tribes that were around the sanctuary, the sanctuary being central, and the tribes around it. And what they had was this. I'm going to have a look at this. On the east side, and bear in mind that the Semitic person, the Hebrew, would orientate himself to the east, you had the three tribes of Issachar, Judah, and Zebulun. And so Judah was a standard bearing according to tradition, and of course it was a lion. Now you have heard the term the lion of the tribe of Judah. We, that is biblical. And that of course is Jesus. When you go to the south, which is really the, the site of favor, you have Gad, Reuben, and Simeon. Now Reuben was a standard bearer, and in this case it was like a son, which means the name Reuben, behold a son. You remember that Jacob, uh, that was the first child. Then you go to the west and you have Benjamin, Ephraim, and Manasseh. And uh, Ephraim, the standard bearer, that means doubly blessed, is an ox. And then you go to the north, you go to the north, where you have the tribes of Asher, Dan, and Naphtali. Now Dan was the standard bearer, and there is an eagle. Now the word, the name Dan means judge. Now when you look at this picture, and I'm just putting it in your mind, and you can do with it what you like, I can't explain this particularly from the Bible, but I believe it to be correct. If you look at the east, the line of the tribe of Judah, that is Jesus. You go to the south, who becomes a man, a son. Now you keep going to Ephraim, who becomes the ox. The ox was the animal of sacrifice for all the people. And then you go to the north, you go to Don, the judgment, and as an eagle, he lifts you up through the judgment. I think it's the plan of salvation. And to me, it's beautiful. And that is what I believe the meaning was. Ezekiel, chapter 1. It's interesting. He has very similar creatures. The features are the same, for except all four features, that is the lion the man, the ox, and the eagle are in one creature. And he refers to them as creatures. But then when you go to chapter 10 of the book of Ezekiel, this is the living creature speaking of them. 
I saw under the God of Israel by the river Chabar, he says, and I know they were cherubim. So the four living creatures that John sees in chapter 4, the living creatures are cherubim, which are a very high order of angels. Now that is biblical. So just to let you know that we can identify them safely as cherubim. Now as he continues, John, what he, to describe what he sees, the four living creatures, each having six wings. That's interesting. In Ezekiel, they have four wings. In Isaiah, where they're called seraphim, they perhaps the same creatures, they have six wings as well. So they're having six wings. Six wings is a symbol of incredible speed. Incredible capacity for translation even, if you like to move to the next place, which is beyond our understanding. And they were full of eyes, full of eyes around and within. Intellect, observation, and glittering, shining. And they did not rest day or night saying, holy, 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 God Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. That means past, present, and future. And this is the principle of the great I am. This is the principle of God. We have God on the throne. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, this is God and this will be recognized as God the Father. Uh, the 24 elders fell down before him who sits on his throne. So we have the 24 elders being present and they, they worship God the Father. They are there already and worship him, they say, who lives forever and ever. And, and they cast their crowns before the throne saying, notice, you are worthy, O Lord. I like that term, you are worthy. It's not just you are able or you are powerful enough. The consideration, and I think this is a very big consideration of chapter 4 and chapter 5, and the principle throughout the whole of the Bible, there has to be a worthiness that is a, a characteristically uh, righteousness, justice, to be granted the title, you are worthy, to receive glory and honor and power. They look at the God of the universe and they know of all that they have seen, what has found place on this planet, they recognize the worthiness of the Father, of all of his actions. The worthiness and the glory and the honor and the power that he deserves. For you created all things. You created all things and by your will, they exist and were created. The word they, the antecedent, would have to be all things. Animate and inanimate. Everything that is created is existing because of his will. Statement of Ellen G. White. I've got to bring this one in. I believe it's important. The fifth chapter of Revelation needs to be closely studied needs to be closely studied. Note here, note here. It is of great importance to those who shall act, who shall act a part 
in the work of God for these last days. If we are to play a role, do you get this? If we are to play a role in what goes on in these last days, we need to study in particular, as he says, the fifth chapter of the book of Revelation, which is we're going to look at right now. And I saw, John says, I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne, God the Father, a scroll written inside and on the back. So there's a scroll there and it has writing on both sides most likely. It's at the right hand. That means the executive side of God the Father. The executive side of God the Father. Now, sealed with seven seals. So if you bear in mind that seven is a number of completion, particularly pertaining to time, from now till the end. This becomes interesting. From now till the end. It is sealed. The scroll, which then must be representing something that has to do with events, world events, that are closed up for the moment, cannot be unfolded unless the seals are removed. I think John grasped that. Being who he was in the days that he lived, he, he understood the significance of a scroll that was sealed. In other words, things weren't going to happen unless there was an unsealing. Then he saw a strong angel and he's listening. And this angel proclaimed with a loud voice, who is worthy, so not who is able, capable, strong enough. No, 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 who is worthy. It has to do, I hope you get this, it has to do with character. God's character. Uh, who is worthy to open the scroll and to lose its seal so that history earth history may unfold. If you can see that, I think John saw that, that'll be very good. Now, <coughs> pardon me, no one in heaven, on earth, or under the earth that had moved, passed on, nobody, nobody was able to open the scroll. Why? Because nobody was worthy outside God, of course. Or to even look at it. No one. And then a very fascinating statement. It says here, I wept much. It's like watching a movie and you get so involved in the movie, it affects you and it awakens your emotions and tears well up and... But here it's far more profound. John looks at the reality. Yes, he's in the spirit, but he, he, he can discern and understand, and he does, that unless this scroll is opened, unless those seals are broken, the history of this planet has come to an end. Now, you've got to understand something. 95 A.D., he sees in a minute Jesus returning. Jesus went to heaven in 31 AD. 
The unique property of this particular chapter is that we're not going forward. The unique property of this particular chapter is that actually we start off with going back some 64 years to 31 AD when Jesus leaves this planet and he goes to heaven. And right now, at this stage, Jesus has not been mentioned yet. He has not arrived yet. And that makes this such a magnificent and very interesting chapter. He wept much because no one was found worthy. The key word is worthy. To have earned the right to let Earth's history unfold, to have the right and the worthiness to unfold, to remove the seals, and therefore also be in control. No one was worthy to open and read the scroll. Can you imagine, in the mind of John, I think he understood this, if the history of this planet could not continue, would not culminate in the second coming of Jesus, and therefore a resurrection of all those in Christ that were buried had fallen asleep. Can you imagine? And what would be his future? And so John feels the significance of the worthiness that is necessary for someone to open the scroll and break the seals. And there is no one thus far to even look at it. And that's what makes him cry. But one of the elders, that's interesting. One of the elders said to me, do not weep, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, that's a messianic qualification, has prevailed to open the scroll. We have the lion of the tribe of Judah, messianic. We have the root of David, messianic. He has prevailed. He has been found worthy to open the scroll, to remove the seals, and only him, because there's no one else. We still got to solve the problem. Who are the elders? Well, I'll come to that. We'll come to that. But he has prevailed, Jesus has prevailed at the loose its seven seals. The history can carry on. And that is important. Very important. We wouldn't be here. In the book, manuscript release 12, and the page number is there, there is this little statement on this comment on this incident we just read. His soul, the soul of John, in vision, was wrought up to such a point of agony and suspense. He was pouring his heart out that one of the strong angels, now I want you to see this, that one of the strong angels had compassion on him, note this, laying his hand on him assuredly and said, weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the book, that is the scroll, and to lose its seven seals. Which in the Bible is one of the elders. The qualifications through the writing of Ellen G. White says, 
one strong angel. Would it be that the elders who were there before Jesus has returned, we haven't introduced Jesus that, the elders were present whilst the ones that were resurrected as the first fruits after Christ himself was resurrected have not arrived yet. It's an interesting point and it helps the qualification. The elders are put to you are angels that perhaps are not part of the angelic hosts, but they are strong, eminent angels who, by the way, and I would have no problem accepting this, might be the same as the sons of God as they are described in the book of Job, representing other worlds. Here we are. I looked, and behold, notice now, in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures, the midst of the 24 elders, how am I to visualize that? I'm not sure. But John is trying to explain what he sees. And he says this, he says, stood a lamb as though it had been slain. The lamb of God, Jesus. Having seven horns, horns in power. Karen in Hebrew means power or horn. Having power, seven, all the time. Seven eyes, fullness. He is full of the spirit. He was the Messiah, the anointed. This is Jesus Christ. Notice, notice. Which are the seven spirits of God. We already learned that. We already learned that. Send out in all the world. Isn't it a fact that Jesus did say to his disciples, please listen to this. I will send another comforter. Isn't that true? He said that. He was referring to the Holy Spirit. And on the day of Pentecost, when the outpouring of the Holy Spirit occurred, the disciples knew that that was precisely the time when Jesus was inaugurated in heaven as our heavenly high priest. They knew that. And so we have a qualification here. He sends out the Holy Spirit. And that is exactly how we can date this particular event as being in 31 A.D., do you understand? Some 50 days after his resurrection. Marvelous, really. Then he came and he took the scroll. Jesus now comes, and this is purely symbolism. He comes and he takes the scroll uh, out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne, the Father, the Father. And now when he had taken the scroll, assumed the authority, which was truly his, notice, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and a golden bowl full of incense. Now, I want you to note something here. Who are falling down before the lamb? The 24 elders. Oh, yes, but not only them. 
also the four living creatures. These are seraphim. Nothing to do with humanity, other than they are involved in the plan of salvation employed by God. But they are seraphim or cherubim, powerful angels, the elders. Them too. Have a look at this. These are the prayers of the saints. So you find, you find that they have, they have a harp, golden bowls, full of incense. Incense is really the merits of Christ. It always was meant to be that. The prayers of the saints are identified with that as well. The prayers of the saints. So, so they have... And a role to play, again, in the plan of salvation, they have a role to play, these beings, the 24 elders. You wouldn't think it was possible that they would be people dealing with the prayers of the saints. Angels, yes, I can understand that. And so we have very powerful beings here involved. We, we, we have to understand something. Our salvation, our salvation... Um, is, is, an, is a, what shall I say, a hub of activity to such a degree. We wholly underestimate what it takes for us to be saved. The play and counterplay in our life, the, the daily decisions, the daily considerations, that they are all involved with even our prayers. And so it's good to know this. They sang a new song saying, notice, you are worthy, there you have that word again, worthiness, to take the scroll. They completely, heaven completely uh, concurs with the fact that Jesus is qualified to take the scroll. And to open its seals, he is qualified to deal with earth's history. Uh, for you were slain, he paid the penalty. The God who gave us the Lord, a transcript of his character, who became man and died for us because we transgressed, so we may yet live, is worthy. And have redeemed, now note this, I want you to be very careful here. In your translation it may say this, it depends which translation you have. You have redeemed us to God, by your blood. Now again, I remind you, this is sung by the 24 elders. And you say, well, they must be people because they are redeemed. Hold it, hold it. The four living creatures, you would agree with me, are not. But they're singing the same song. How can that be? There is an explanation here. The King James Version and even the authorized version took this from the uh, the Vulgate, which is not a good translation from the Bible into the Latin. You have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. When you go to the original Greek, you will find this. And have redeemed them to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And that is the correct translation. 
the elders are not redeemed. Clearly the seraphim are not redeemed. They have not sinned. And so they are talking and referring to the people. The first fruits have arrived. That must have been a wonderful, a wonderful experience. Certainly for those who were resurrected with Christ and taken with him to heaven. But this is important to us, very important. Because we will meet them by the grace of God. You have made us, notice, again, the same story. Kings and priests to our God. No, no, the actual translation or the original translation in the Greek and you have made them kings and priests to our God. And it says here, and we shall reign on earth. No, no, that's not a correct translation. Go back to the original translation. And they shall reign on the earth. We, as a people who are redeemed, are the ones that shall rule on this earth. Isn't that what the Bible teaches? And that is true. That is true. So what happened to all the angels? Well, that's interesting. I love this one. Book of Acts. Jesus was taken up. And a cloud received him out of their sight. They were staring, looking in the skies. Straining their eyes to get the last glimpse of Jesus. Who was going home to heaven. In fact, then there were two angels standing near them. And saying, why do you keep looking in heaven? He will come back the same way. Same way? Yeah. So he comes from the cloud. He'll be in the cloud. And that's where we meet him. Now this is interesting. Jesus said he'll bring all the angels with him. Because they are the reapers of the whole general resurrection. Might it be that angels accompanied him? as they collected their hero, the conqueror, not just for planet Earth, but for the justice in the whole of the universe and bring him home. Have a look at this statement in Desire of Ages. Talking about his ascension. As he passed upwards, the awe-stricken disciples looked with straining eyes for the last glimpse of their ascending Lord. A cloud of glory. Did you get this, folks? A cloud of glory hid him from their sight. A cloud of glory are billions of angels. Hid him from their sight. And the words came back to them as the cloudy, I like this, chariot of angels received him. There's your affirmation. That that cloud consists of angels. Lo, I'm with you always. That's what Jesus said. Even till the end of the world. So then I looked, John says, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne. Isn't this fascinating? Chapter 4. Jesus is not there. There are the 24 elders, the four living creatures. There's God the Father. The elders have to be a different identity from the first fruit that were resurrected after Jesus came back to life. And so you have 
The voice of many angels, Jesus has arrived. No doubt the first fruits have arrived. But also the angels that accompanied him from planet Earth back to the celestial courts have arrived. And that is noted here. I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times, 10,000, thousands upon thousands, innumerable, innumerable. They have returned. And they say with a loud voice, again, here is the key word again of those chapters. Worthy is the Lamb. God the Father is worthy because he gave his only begotten son. His only unique son is the better translation. Jesus is worthy because he became man, lived a perfect life, the perfect witness of the love of his heavenly father who loves us. And so here we have it, worthiness to receive power, riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature, notice, every creature which is in heaven, on the earth, under the earth, one day the, the living and those who have passed away, but they'll be brought back to life. They will say that uh, such are in the sea, wherever they are, all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne. One day, Paul puts it in Philippians like this, every knee shall bow. And every living being will absolutely, absolutely confess that God is worthy. That Jesus is worthy. It is about moral integrity of the character of God and to the Lamb forever and ever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen, and the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. And so, next week, the seven seals. As Jesus will open that scroll and the seven seals, we will talk about that. We will talk about the seven seals of Revelation. We'll talk about the four horses of the apocalypse. We will talk about the fifth seal, which is fascinating, the cry of the martyrs. And we will hear about the sixth seal, the six seals, the cosmic disturbances, which almost brings us back into our own days, very near to it, well-recorded phenomena in the history, recent, relative recent history of our planet. And of course, ultimately, it will culminate with the seal, the seventh one, which is really the end of time. I hope you uh, will join us again as we study the book of Revelation. And please, if you have questions, uh, waitaraevent at gmail.com, please feel free to ask any questions. I hope it's been a blessing to you. I hope I've been able to give you a glimpse of what chapter 4 and chapter 5 of the book of Revelation is about. As God makes himself known through those two chapters in a very special way.
I hope you're blessed. That's my prayer. And let's pray. Let's just pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we had this opportunity again to study your word. Lord, thanking you for making yourself so, so well known and, and understood through your word to us and that we may grasp the magnificent, but particularly the worthiness that you are worthy and that Jesus is worthy. And we know ourselves we are unworthy, but that you love us and we look forward to that day when we'll see you face to face. In Jesus' precious name, we pray. Amen. Amen. been listening to Revelation Ancient Prophecy with Pastor Baron Neustraten, brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio. For more information on this series, visit waitarachurch.org.au. to praise will now sing Worthy is Your Name.
let's listen to William Ackland as he shares a psalm from his paraphrase of the Bible called The Gift. Psalm 13 that I will share with you today is a psalm of David for the choir director. It is quite a short psalm, just six verses. And the theme of this psalm is trust in God's salvation. How long, O Lord, will you forget me? How long will you turn your face away? How long will my mind be in turmoil as grief overwhelms my heart every day? How long will my enemy lord it over me? Please turn and hear me, O my God. Give me a clear vision so I do not fall into the sleep of death. Otherwise, my enemy will say, I have gained the victory over that man and the troublers of my soul will be glad if I fall. All my life I have depended on your mercy and my heart rejoices in your salvation. Now I will sing praises to the Lord because his blessings have flowed over me. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.